Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this episode, Web3, the world of decentralized tech. Beth Haddock and Lewis Cohen are co-chairs of the Web3 subcommittee of the City Bar Task Force on Digital Technologies, and they're experts in the world of Web3, decentralized finance, blockchain, and cryptocurrency technologies. They helped us understand how the world of decentralized technologies is taking shape. Decentralized finance should not be in any way, shape, or form about the evasion of existing regulation. Rather, it should be about new ways for individuals to deal directly with each other on matters of finance and economics. What problems are being discussed and discovered by innovators? The work that we're doing is just making sure that checks and balances are really resilient and are able to work together the same way we've seen innovation with Web2 or even telecom before that. And where we stand to benefit from future breakthroughs. When data breaches first happened, large institutions were hesitant to let the data subjects to know about the breaches. Whereas in the Web3 world, you see these white hat hackers. A really interesting pattern where the incentives for self-reporting and what I call sustainable governance are really there. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Beth Haddock. Welcome, and thank you for listening to this New York City Bar podcast. I'm Beth Haddock, and my co-host today is Lewis Cohen. We're the co-chairs of the Web3 subcommittee for the Task Force on Digital Technologies. You may ask, what is Web3 in this context For us, that means that we're contributing to the Bar Association's super important value add, which is we're helping develop guidelines or best practices when appropriate, continuing ed, as well as thought leadership on three Web3-focused topics, DeFi, or decentralized finance, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, Uh, as well as stablecoins. For the launch of the subcommittee, we're initially focused on a few projects. This will be the first of a few pitches to say, if anyone in our audience is interested or has expertise, we welcome both curiosity and expertise. We are looking to expand the effort to more of the New York City bar community To give you a taste of what we're working on currently, there's an effort for a DeFi compliance framework, really off of the foundation that even tech companies should consider good internal controls and a tech compliance program. So we're working on that as well as we study proposed new crypto regulation For instance, like the recent effort from the New York Attorney General's office. And lastly, forums like this podcast with Lewis, as well as webinars. And we anticipate we'll sponsor a webinar on stablecoins later this year. So let's turn, Lewis, to your why about co-chairing this Web3 subcommittee. Well, there's an easy first answer, Beth. I get to work with you. So, so that's, that, that's a why that works very well. But more, more specifically, I've had the pleasure of working in the 
DeFi and broadly Web3 space for about six plus seven years, I guess now. And I can tell listeners that it is absolutely the most interesting legal work, I believe, that's out there, bar none. And for those lawyers listening who are members of the New York City Bar Association, there's probably no greater group of lawyers working together to think about these important issues than the Bar Association and the sort of broadly Web3 Task Force and the subcommittee that Beth, you and I co-chair. Being part of the subcommittee is really part of giving back to the community and helping other lawyers better understand what's going on and how to get involved. And it's a safe place for those who may not have spent as much time as either you or I to ask questions, get informed, and really contribute and grow their own careers. Why don't I go ahead and share my why as well? Because yes. I'll tell you, I think about, I'll call it the lucky seven, which is we've both been in this space for about the same time. I really pivoted from legacy finance to fintech and blockchain about seven years ago. I'm a strategic advisor as well as a director on early stage companies, which, as you said, is incredibly fascinating. You have an opportunity to work on what I think the Biden administration really focused on, which is responsible innovation. These entrepreneurs that are in this space, the ones that probably you and I work with, are looking and trying to figure out how they can responsibly innovate. And I can't think of a better way for me and then our whole group to volunteer and spend our time as lawyers than really advocating for that ethos or that norm. In particular, and then I'll turn it back to you so we can give the audience a taste of some of the studying we do with different reports, like a few that came out first quarter. I think it's so important when you look at Web3 and blockchain space, we're seeing from my perspective anyway, this tension. You, The U.S. has this amazing process with our three branches of government. And as lawyers and members of the New York City Bar, the work that we're doing is just making sure that checks and balances are really resilient and are able to work together the same way we've seen innovation with Web2 or even telecom before that. And our efforts are focused on making sure that those limitations and the checks and balances, we educate the policymakers and the like, and that there's a lot of lawyers and thought leaders that are involved in our subcommittee, yourself included, Lewis, as well as the larger task force. So wonderful company to be in this effort together, I think of it as really important for the legal profession. Uh, I'll get off my soapbox now and (laughs) really ask a question of you, Lewis, about the Financial Stability Board, the FSB report. It came out February, 2023, for those of our listeners that may not be familiar with the report, and you should definitely take a look at it if you haven't already really is a report on DeFi. And then the Treasury published a more recent risk assessment, the illicit finance risk assessment, which in its title gives you a sense of a perception about this space. 
And that was more recent in April. And when you think about those two recent publications, I know they're just examples of many developments we've seen in 2023. But for our audience, Lewis, if you can, maybe give us your top one or two takeaways as to what you think are the important takeaways for lawyers who are taking a look at these reports and what they could use in their practice or what they should think about when they think of developments in Web3. Absolutely, Beth, and thank you. And just to level set for folks, the Financial Stability Board is an international body that was set up after the great financial crisis in 2009 to coordinate amongst national regulators who are concerned with avoiding another great financial crisis and preserving stability, which is, I think, something all of us can get behind in principle. As you noted, Beth, moving from that in principle to what that means in practice can get a little bit challenging. And so to your first point, just what can lawyers do? I do think this is an area where it is important for lawyers to actually understand what's going on under the hood both in terms of how the technology works, but also what's actually people are doing. And why is that so important? You you mentioned two very important reports. Let's start with the Financial Stability Board's report or the FSB report. And that's called the Financial Stability Risks of Decentralized Finance, I think. It was, as you said, February of 2023. And the takeaways there are very plain. And that is that the authors of the report are really skeptical about there being such a thing as DeFi. The financial regulatory ecosystem is built around responsible parties, having supervision and oversight of those responsible parties, having the ability to penalize or sanction or fine them, and to achieve regulatory and policy goals through the transmission of banks, broker-dealers, exchange operators, centralized securities depositories, and all of these market participants that have, over the last, give or take, 50-ish years, developed to a reasonably effective economic system. Decentralized finance raises fundamental questions for this approach put forward by the FSB. And so you see in this report the authors struggling, and in some cases, I would argue, with some reason, to say, is this really a decentralized finance or is this just financial products being offered by businesses who just would prefer not to be regulated because isn't that costly and problematic? And as lawyers, to help clients who are working in the space, it's really important to understand where those lines are because certainly decentralized finance should not be in any way, shape, or form, about the evasion of existing regulation. Rather, it should be about new ways for individuals to deal directly with each other on matters of finance and economics. The latter of those two, I think we'd all agree, is quite important, but the former of two is is deeply concerning. And I think the bar plays a very or can play a very important role in helping delineate where those lines are, helping to explain to regulators where they are kidding valid concerns and where they are misunderstanding how the technology works. And on 
On the subject of how the technology works, Beth, you want to maybe say a little bit more about what DeFi is, because we're using this term rather casually for ourselves, but I suspect many of our listeners don't have quite as much of a sense as you or I might as to what we even mean when we say decentralized finance. Yeah, thank you. And just one, responding to your question, as well as just really following up on some of the interesting points you raised. You and I have had these conversations, but when I think of advising or being on a board, there is this conversation that goes back and forth. And I don't believe the responsible innovators are trying to evade laws. They want to make sure that they understand by way of example, there's a lot of precedent between fintech and a bank or a fully regulated broker dealer or an advisor. But there are lots of fintech companies that operate without a license that is fully regulated financial institution. But as you mentioned, and this really is getting to the DeFi point, one is not holding oneself out as providing financial services. Instead, One's holding oneself out as offering up technology in the same way, by way of example, we could name a couple of tech companies like the tech companies that bring you email or the technology that's bringing the podcast to us today or anything of that nature. But there really is this gray line like there is with any type of new innovation. And that's why this Web3 subcommittee and the entire task force is so valuable because the more that we all get together and talk about what the anticipated new rules and regulations and laws should be, the more important it is that the policymakers understand what decentralized finance is. And just to give a little bit of a background on DeFi, I think it's probably too sophisticated slash complicated for our short podcast, but I will say there's lots of really great materials out there. A lot of white papers that I'll encourage the audience to take a look at. But when you think of decentralized finance and you think about decentralized, which means it should be legally decentralized, Control and influence should not be centralized in the sense that we think of FTX or some of the other big press items that we've seen. Autonomous, when I think of DeFi, I think of DAOs as together. So I'm going through the DAO first, meaning that not only is the tool that's being used to help with finance legally decentralized, but it also is automated through smart contracts. You don't have a group of founders who have all the control and influence uh, without using uh, technology or those smart contracts that come along with the DeFi nomenclature. And I do think as we're talking about this, it's worth highlighting There are some really great thought leaders who've written some papers about this as well, but the nomenclature in DeFi is admittedly confusing. Calling it DeFi in the same way that we want to make a corollary to fintech, at least when you have the shortcut to fintech, tech is in the word. So I think it is a little bit confusing. If there are 
DeFi projects out there that aren't fully decentralized, peer-to-peer, where you really don't have an intermediary and you are not operating under a revenue model that looks more like a financial institution and less like a tech company, I do think that's where you come outside of the lines of being a DeFi project. So to summarize a fairly complicated concept, it's definitely take a look at, there's a lot of great content out there. DeFi to me is not aspirational as you've seen a lot of the regulators and others who might be talking with a broad brush. If a project is aspirationally decentralized, I believe many would agree then that is not within the definition of DeFi that we on the Web3 subcommittee are focused on. The Just to give one more concrete example before I turn it back to you, Lewis, when you look at the report, the FSB report, there is a gap and an opportunity for us on the subcommittee, as well as the larger task force, as well as just the legal profession, to really help to fill the gap in understanding about what DeFi is, what DAOs are, and what stablecoins are. Because if we come to a common understanding, like I just gave an example about being adequately decentralized, I think we'll be well-served by guidance that is more objective and more helpful for the innovators. So there was this concept in the report, and I'd love to hear what you think about it as well. But it was talking about the underlying incentives. And maybe if I can, I'll just give a little bit of a quote and ask what you think about this, Lewis, which is, at the end of, it's in the middle of the report around page 10, it talks about the underlying incentives and the nature of activities don't differ materially between TradeFi and DeFi. And to me, that really shows a misunderstanding of what DeFi is and the real need for this subcommittee because centralized finance or CFI, as we saw with FTX and some of the other enforcement cases and debacles that we've seen that's distinguishable from DeFi. Anything else that you would add about the incentives and the differences between TradeFi and DeFi? Yeah, Beth, those are great points. And these are just fundamentally different ways of looking at a similar problem. That is to say, again, Do you want both the benefits and the consequences of having a relatively small number of entities, again, banks, exchanges, broker-dealers, take responsibility for what occurs and take the consequences of that, or is a more decentralized system in which almost anyone can participate without those barriers to entry, are the benefits and the consequences of that worthwhile? I would argue, Beth, that really both are needed. We certainly, and I think very few, neither you nor most uh, folks who are working in the DeFi space, would say we should get rid of all centralized finance and really just have DeFi. I don't think anyone is saying that. But I think the idea that a decentralized system can live 
alongside a centralized system and provide the benefits and also the burdens to those who select it is something that's very important and very valuable. The point you make around page 10 of the Financial Stability Report, Beth, is a critical one. The incentives are very different here because as you or I engage with our traditional financial institutions, we have basically no stake whatsoever in the outcomes, whether they're profitable or unprofitable. We can coincidentally buy some stock of Citibank or Wells Fargo or what have you. It's a very distant relation. When you engage in DeFi, you have a direct economic incentive to see and promote the system that you're using succeed. Moreover, people can come in and leave when they want. That has pluses, but it has minuses as well. Tokens allow people to receive incentives in ways that are completely different from traditional systems. It's critical that we explore how those incentives can be used in ways that are constructive for society and mankind in general. I think the idea that the only way people around the world can interact financially with each other is through a small number of large financial institutions overseen by a handful of governments who make all those decisions, I don't think should be accepted as a foregone conclusion. There are many benefits to that, but there are drawbacks. And I think, again, misunderstanding how the economic incentives can allow for different systems becomes a fundamental driver in setting regulatory policy or missetting regulatory policy, as the case may be. I think that's really important. You, Beth, I know we're coming probably to the close of our time, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on traditional finance, centralized finance, CFI, as we sometimes call it and DeFi, and where at least some of those potential benefits are, because some of the listeners may think, oh, this is all very abstract, some ways that people can really, in a meaningful way, benefit. Yeah, I love working with you, Lewis. And and hopefully this conversation gives our audience a sense as to how fascinating the work is, how much we can act as a bridge between these two worlds, because one example I would give you is really clarifying a point that you made, a super important one about the incentives and about how participants are more aligned. And we should really reimagine the way that we think of different flows of information and funds and the rest. I wrote a how-to book on compliance. And the, at the core of that is we're set up in such a hierarchy right now that there's a lot of pressure on one person, a chief compliance officer, and on policies and procedures and other types of familiar controls to make sure that we avoid fraud and manipulation and theft and all the types of misconduct that I think we would all agree we want to avoid. But when you look at some of the studies, one in particular Dan Ariely did out of Duke about fudge factor thinking, you get at the core of incentives. And from my perspective, one of the not only fascinating things about blockchains, but absolutely amazing opportunity is to reimagine those incentives as you described it. Blockchain can increase the transparency. So by way of example, instead of 
a hierarchy within a financial institution or even a tech company where if there's some sort of misconduct, you want employees to speak up and self-report. We have a lot of whistleblowing regimes, but wouldn't it be a wonderful change of the paradigm if you were able to use these concepts of increased transparency, the peer-to-peer transactions, and the peer-to-peer collaboration and transparency to increase self-reporting. So one doesn't need to wait for an audit team or a compliance officer or a whistleblower to talk about misconduct. Instead, it almost is like these kernels of early bad behavior are seen because of the opportunities that come with the Web3 technology and just the infrastructure By way of example, we already see that with data breaches. Instead of we could take our pick when data breaches first happened, large institutions were hesitant to let the data subjects to know about the breaches. Whereas in the Web3 world, in the world that we're talking about for our subcommittee, you see these white hat hackers and breaches and thefts, not always, but like a really interesting pattern where the incentives for self-reporting and what I call sustainable governance are really there. So that's one example. And like you said, I really do enjoy talking about the issue and working with you. So I'm going to wrap us up with just one final question for you, pivoting away from what we have been talking about and just giving you a chance to read into the future a little bit for our audience, what they should be thinking about for the remainder of 2023. We hear lots of developments in the space, like the Uki Dow case from the CFTC. We have new regulation coming out of Europe. And I wonder if there are some resources or concepts that you would share with our audience and say they should really keep on the in the forefront. Gosh, Beth, I certainly enjoy working with you as well. And hopefully for listeners who are enjoying just this very brief dialogue uh, to get a sense of what our our subcommittee is like, what we're trying to do in terms of informing education, and we're all learning. So please do, just to echo Beth's call, reach out through the Bar Association, and hopefully if you're a City Bar member, join us in this discussion and dialogue. In terms of resources that are available for people who are interested, but perhaps not yet that as informed as they'd like to be. I think it is tricky and it is in the nature of the decentralized uh, system that there's a lot of information out there, much of which is not always very accurate. And there are scholarly works. And even if we disagree, Beth, I think with the two reports that we've mentioned here today, the Financial Stability Board or FSB report and the U.S. Treasury's illicit finance report, Even if we disagree with some of the conclusions, I think the information there is generally speaking accurate, and it's at least a starting point. There are a number of reliable entities that that post information. There's an entity called the DeFi Alliance, I believe that's what they're called, right? 
Miller Whitehouse Levine's group. The, the DeFi Education Fund. Thank you. Thank you. I knew that didn't sound quite right. The DeFi Education Fund. Thank you, Beth. So the DeFi Education Fund is run by a gentleman named Miller Whitehouse Levine, and it's a terrific organization and with lots of resources and, and, and a website. So that's something that's a little bit more DeFi friendly. But really, it's staying on top of things and following uh, folks like Beth or myself on Twitter on LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is NY Crypto Lawyer. So feel free to follow me. I think Beth, you can provide your handle as well and follow us on LinkedIn and just really start to dive in, start swimming and become educated. The Ethereum Foundation, which takes an active role in the Ethereum community where a lot of DeFi occurs, has a lot of good resources. One of the main founders of the Ethereum project, Vitalik Buterin, has a blog where he publishes very interesting and insightful articles and of his own insights, which are really worth reading. And there's a lot of stuff. And I think it's the kind of thing, Beth, I'd say, once you go down the rabbit hole, you find yourself going there, but certainly consider our subcommittee as a potential source of reference and recommendations for learning in a variety of areas. And again, this touches not just, I just maybe one last point to emphasize, Beth, before I turn it back to you to close. Um, we've been talking about a subset, really, of the issues. For example, tax lawyers, there's tons of tax issues around this. Corporate lawyers, there are all kinds of governance and related issues that implicate the kind of learnings that a corporate lawyer would have. People who do property and commercial law all will find relevant areas of interest. As other otherwise, in our overall task force, we talk about the Uniform Commercial Code as being in the process of being revised, and New York State, amongst pretty much all the states are hopefully going to adopt a new Article 12. So for people who do UC work in commercial law, there's plenty to dig in there. So there's something for everybody in terms of taking what you already know, even for trusts and estates lawyers, there's actually quite a lot to do. So I think it's just dive in, find the part of this that's relevant to you in your practice and join our subcommittee. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you for joining me here today. I'll just reiterate, yes, please reach out to the New York City Bar or reach out to us and we can help you if you are interested in more resources and joining the subcommittee. So thank you again for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.